Oh, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Leonie, for uh, reading for us this morning. Please keep your Bibles open to that Philippians passage as we continue our series. Uh, and today, uh, plenty of room to take notes, really. You've got two pages, so uh, you know, feel free to draw a picture of me or something on the other side if that's what you'd like to do. It has been done before, can I just say. But anyway, let's pray. Ask God to help us as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for your grace and mercy and love shown towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have life in his name. And as we reflect on him today, Father, help us to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week uh, we saw that a true Christian is one who lives for Christ. Uh, that's who a Christian is. Uh, Paul made, you might remember, the astonishing claim in verse 22 of chapter 1 that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, living for Jesus, putting the gospel first, is what shapes Paul's entire life. But just as importantly, Paul wants it to be what shapes the Philippian church and, in fact, the life of every Christian. And so our passage today shows us again what a worthy Christian life is or what it looks like. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27 that we've just read is probably the theme verse that drives the whole of Paul's letter. Uh, let me just read it for you again. He says here in verse 27, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit." with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. No matter what happens, Paul wants the Philippians to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we're going to unpack that in a moment, but first I want us to see the motivation and the supreme example that Paul sets before us at the end of the section that we've just read this morning. Uh, because Paul wants us to consider Jesus Christ here. And so the passage before us is uh, one of momentous importance for us as Christians if we're going to live worthy Christian lives, particularly the section from chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, because in this particular passage today, God reveals us to us something of himself. More specifically, this passage has important things to teach us about the Son of God, about Jesus Christ. And so in these few verses, we're allowed, if you like, to enter into the mind of Christ. And so we would be wise to tread carefully because this is holy ground. I, I want to start here because Paul presents Jesus not only as our Saviour and our Lord, but also as our example and the model that we must seek to pattern our own lives on if we're truly Christian. See, this is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul has actually patterned his own life on that enables him to rejoice, even though he's in chains, awaiting trial and the possibility of execution. And so let's pick it up again from verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Paul tells us that though he was 
in the form of God, he deliberately took on the form of a servant. Here's a reference, I think, to, um, well, I don't think it is. It's a reference to what we call the incarnation. That is, God become man in the person of Jesus Christ, born in human flesh. Uh, Jesus didn't come into existence at his birth or even at his conception to Mary on that first Christmas. Before that, he he existed in eternity in complete equality with God. Now, the idea here picks up both his essence as God and also his function as God without actually explaining all the details. That is, Jesus Christ, Paul asserts, was fully God, but he deliberately chose to become fully human in the form of a servant. In other words, Jesus lives and acts and functions as a servant, even though he is, in fact, God. I mean, how many uh, headmistresses do you imagine uh, before they leave work, go around, uh, tidy their employees' classrooms, empty their bins before they leave so that they'll be ready to go in the morning? I mean, they're important, powerful, significant people. We wouldn't even imagine that they would or should do that kind of task. But Jesus gave up all of his rights as God. He didn't cling to his godhood. He didn't exploit his godhood to his own advantage. He made himself nothing. He became a servant for our benefit. Jesus didn't take advantage of being in the form of God. The way to be godly, therefore, is by giving, by humbling yourself, by loving. And so Jesus gave himself fully to become a servant. And yet if that isn't outrageous enough, we read on that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what it is to be God. We see God in all his glory as we see Jesus executed on a cross to redeem a race of rebels. And he knew that that's what he came to do and he did it willingly. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It's on the screen there, I think. It records Jesus' own words. I came, Jesus says, not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus takes the meaning of humility to a whole new level in this incredible act of loving service for us. You know, it's difficult for us to see the scandal and the, the horror in Paul's words here. Because this is, this is not just a, a willingness to die. This is a scandalous and shameful death that not even the worst of Roman criminals were allowed to bear. You know, as, as painful as the cross might have been, ultimately the cross was not, what, not merely about pain but about shame. I mean, the Romans used to crucify dead criminals. Why? To shame them. So here is our saviour, Jesus, God the Son, the glorious one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a shame-ridden cross for us. We're all beneficiaries of Jesus' selfless sacrifice of himself on the cross for us. He died for our sin. And so the cross was where the full weight of God's wrath and the full weight of our shame were brought to bear on Christ. He came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That's what the cross means. 
If you ever doubt for a moment whether Jesus loves you, then take a moment to consider the cross. The message of the cross is the message that both God the Father and God the Son love you. He bore our guilt. He suffered our shame. He came not to be served, not to get and get and get, but to serve, to give and give and give. However, Jesus' willing humiliation is not where it ends because Paul continues in verse 9. Look what he says of chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, that is because of what he did, God has highly exalted him and and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." See, Jesus may have humbled himself, but God has now exalted him. And God gave him a name that is above every name. Now, names were actually very significant in the ancient world. Uh, And the name that was given to Jesus actually reflects who he is and what he has achieved. That is, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, it's kind of easy to miss the enormity of this particular claim But Paul refers back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, where God speaks, and this is what God says. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, this actual passage makes it quite clear that the name Lord is the name given to God alone. And so to give that name to Jesus is actually a declaration of his deity. He is the God-man who, along with his Father, is Lord over the whole universe. And at this name, we're told, the time is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know, did you notice the comprehensiveness of these bowing knees and confessing tongues here? Because he says, every single knee... Every single tongue in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth. See, now that, that doesn't mean, of course, that everyone will be saved. All will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but not all will be saved and do so joyfully. And so even if it's not the case now, ultimately everyone, both enemy and friend, will acknowledge him as Lord. If you face God thinking you're okay, able to save yourself, not wanting God's way to save you, if you think you can kind of do without Jesus Christ, assuming that somehow God will be pleased with you, then you're living in dangerous arrogance and sin. For God so loved you and sent his only son as the only possible way that you could be saved. Are you humble enough to accept his gift, because that's what it takes. You see, here is the reason for the manner of Paul's life. Uh, Here's the driving force of his motivation for gospel ministry. Uh, Here are the, the grounds for his joy in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And here is the basis for his appeal to the Philippian Christians in uh, verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1. Let's just head back there, take a look again at the appeal that Paul makes to the church in Philippi. He says to them, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Uh, verse 27 there, notice, begins with the word only. Uh, it could be translated just one thing with his finger raised. Now, that is, Paul, Paul appeals for just one thing from the Philippians, that whatever happens, their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, in verses 12 to 26, Paul had already outlined his manner of life. And now in verses 27 and following, Paul outlines what their manner of life ought to be. It needs to be worthy of the gospel. He makes only one demand, but it's comprehensive, isn't it? Covering every aspect of a Christian's life. And notice he highlights two key aspects of worthy living as they play out in our partnership towards the world. That is, our need to stand firm together, do that together, and to be of one mind. Now, Paul didn't promise an easy life for his partners. Uh, the Philippians may not be in prison like Paul, but they are engaged in the same conflict as him. Uh, there is and there will be opposition that they face and therefore their need to stand firm. And not just themselves, they're to stand firm together without being frightened of their opponents. Now, notice that's what's that's what standing firm in the gospel looks like. It involves these two things. So I think you see it in the screen. Uh, number one, verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then secondly, verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. See, striving side by side suggests an active and energetic promotion and defense of the gospel. That's to be done together. It's not a kind of do-it-yourself activity. It's a together striving, not for your faith in the gospel so that you stand firm, but striving together for the faith or the public truth of the gospel. See, that's what a model church will look like, actively and energetically engaged together for the work of the gospel in our world. And secondly, as we do that, not being frightened in anything by our opponents. Now, as, as members of our church... We must not actually just kind of see ourselves merely as members. Uh, we, mustn't see us, we must actually see ourselves as active partners. We're not spectators, but participants in something bigger and grander than sitting on a pew in church. We're partners in the proclamation and the defence of the gospel. But as we proclaim the gospel, it challenges the world and its ways. And so it will sometimes come under attack. You know, I grew up in a, a Christian-friendly country and as a result, I think I'm soft. Um, and if you're my age, I'm telling you, or older, I imagine it's the same for you. There's no sense in which we've been strengthened uh, for the battle because of the opposition that we've already had to face and stand firm in. Uh, we're largely untested in the kind of opposition that Paul is referring to. Now, of course, you may have faced some opposition like family disapproval or being, for being a Christian or having Christian priorities. Uh, you may have had some troubles at work. 
You might have been scoffed at by intellectual colleagues or something similar, and you're right. You've got to stand firm, don't you, on those occasions, as well as be supported and prayed for by your fellow Christians. But in Paul's day, Emperor Nero tied Christians to stakes, poured tar over them and lit them. See, that's where the term Roman candles came from. That's the kind of opposition in which Paul told them not to be afraid. And don't get me wrong, I've got no desire for opposition or persecution to come our way, even though persecution generally has the effect of helping us sort out our priorities. But I don't want us to be naive either. In very public ways, Christianity is now being attacked by leaders and public opinion shapers in our country. And the temptation for us will be to keep our heads down. But we actually don't want to do that because the gospel is good news from a loving God for a world that needs to hear of it. And so when a school principal wants to stop Christian groups meeting or try to phase out scripture, then we are faced with a choice. Will the Christian parents stand together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, winsome and loving and kind as they do it, because we know that salvation is found in no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. If we stand for the gospel, we will sometimes face opposition. But Paul doesn't want us to keep our heads down. At work, at uni, school, in our community, will we stand with Jesus? And if we do that, it's a sign, Paul says. Our gospel partnership that stands firm with one mind, defending and promoting the gospel, even if we suffer is a sign that we truly belong to Christ. And it's also a sign of judgment against those who oppose the one to whom every knee will one day bow. Ultimately, uh, Paul claims that both our belief in Jesus and also our suffering for him is actually a gift of God for the sake of Christ, our Saviour. See verse 29 there. To the one who humbled himself to a shameful death on a cross for our sakes calls us to follow him to glory in the same way. The saved sinner walks with Jesus by taking up their cross daily and following him. And so it's for the sake of our saviour that we stand firm in the midst of opposition, united in the advance of the gospel. The question, of course, is always, how are we going to do this? What will be our motivation? And it ought to be the right motivation, right? Who will be our example? Well, Paul points us to the nature of our partnership within the church, with each other, which must be foundational for us if we're to take the gospel to the world together. Have a look at verse 1 there of chapter 2. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now notice Paul uses an if-then kind of an appeal here. So if this has happened, then do this. Now the basis of his appeal here is, is what they've experienced of the Christian life. Has being Christian ever brought you any encouragement? Do you know the comfort from the salvation and love that has come to you in Jesus? Or perhaps where a, a fellow Christian has been the source of that love or comfort. Have you ever been thankful for the sense of belonging to the fellowship of believers that is the work of God's spirit or for the genuine interest and concern, a practical concern of other Christians? Do you know the affection 
and compassion of God for you because our God is a compassionate God. See, if you know the love, the forgiveness, the mercy, the blessings of being Christian, if you know any of these things, if these are part of the normal Christian life that you have experienced, then there are certain things that you should do, says Paul. And the appeal he makes is for a common mind. Look at verse 2. He says, Then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, if the one thing Paul wanted them to do back in verse 27 was to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, then being like-minded as they did that would complete his joy. Now, essentially, if you want to break it down, they needed to be united with their fellow Christians and they needed to be other person-centred. Now, if you've been loved and nurtured and encouraged and made to feel a part of the fellowship in any way, then you, as a Christian, owe the same to others. But it's not just payback. He's not talking about it. It's being humble and servant-hearted. It's being other person-centred. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from, mine says rivalry or conceit, but I think yours says selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, what a countercultural message that is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, or you might say from selfish ambition or arrogance. Rather, humility is to be the character of the Christian. And when Jesus humbled himself, he hadn't forgotten who he was. He knew exactly who he was, and he lowered himself to serve others. See, humility is Jesus kneeling to wash the disciples' feet. Humility is other person-centeredness. See, what lies at the heart of disunity is self-centeredness. People being concerned about their own interests, their own concerns, their own desires. And we see that everywhere in our world, don't we? That's normal. But we must not see it in church. A humble person is someone who is always talking to someone else and is concerned about them. Are you pleased for others when they're doing well? Or is there envy? And Johnny Gibson tells the story of a young girl uh, who came home with a, from school with a, a small box and she gave the box to her dad and said that the most important person in the world was in that box. And her dad thought it might have been a nativity scene with the Jesus in the manger. But when he opened it, there was a mirror at the bottom of the box. And you've got to ask, what kind of worldview drives that curriculum? It's the height of arrogance, isn't it? And yet, sadly, it captures what the world really believes. Self-centred pride. Selfish ambition. Conceit. Here's where most of our problems actually come from. It does not lead to joy. And yet, Christianity is countercultural. It doesn't take its lead from the world. It takes it from Christ. It's all about giving, not taking. The one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so he gave himself fully to become a servant. Jesus is the classic example of humility, of looking out for the interests of others, of being other people-centred. Do you want to be like Christ? Then you must give. 
serve, humble yourself. This is the mind that we are to have among ourselves. It's the mind of Christ. We're to be single-minded about having the mind of Christ. Are you humble? On one occasion, a woman came up to the great Methodist leader, John Wesley, and she said to him, Mr. Wesley, please pray for me. I'm a wicked woman. Uh, To which Wesley replied, Indeed you are, madam, and I will pray for you. Um, It obviously wasn't what the woman wanted to hear. How dare you? And off she stormed. Um, Now, that woman didn't really believe she was wicked. Her pious words were just that. They were pious words. She She may have actually appeared humble, but she was actually very proud. And you see, often the genuine nature of your humility will be seen when people actually treat you like a servant. You might be actively engaged in serving a church, but how do we react when people seem to be taking that service for granted? Or when people don't recognise how much you do? Or when you see others not being as sacrificial as you are? See, a mark of our humility will be seen when our service is taken for granted or unappreciated. There's no room for pride at any level in the Christian life. We're to be of one mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ. Everything we do, every ministry, requires humility. I might like to talk with my friends after church, but instead I'm going to chat with some newcomers, so they know that they're welcome here. I'd like to take it easy after a big day at work, but instead I'm going to get along to my growth group so I can encourage the others that are there. I wouldn't mind an easy evening on Sunday, but instead I'm going to go along to church on Sunday evening and help with the kids so the parents can get to church. See, I'd like to do a bunch of things to please myself, but instead I'm going to put myself aside for the sake of the other person's interest. That is, I'm going to think like Christ. See, not only are we to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, but as we do that, we're also to strive for the church's unity by conforming, not just imitating, but by conforming to Christ's humility. Don Carson recalls an interview he did with two elderly but great and influential Christian leaders. He acknowledged that they'd been incredibly influential uh, and they'd been leaders for over 50 years. And he said that what was attractive about their ministries was that they had both retained their integrity. They were both strong, but neither was egotistical. Both hadn't succumbed to their own empire building. He asked them what it was that had actually enabled them not to fall in those areas. And he said both of them were deeply embarrassed. And one of them, kind of in a gentle outrage, said this. He said, how on earth can anyone be arrogant when standing beside the cross? And there's the answer, isn't it? They had the mind of Christ. They couldn't exploit their position any more than Christ considered equality with God something to be grasped. And so when we stand beside the cross, we see the love of Christ who bore our guilt and shame. And when we truly understand that, we can do nothing else but pursue the same mind as that of Christ, striving to ensure that our manner of life is worthy of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for Jesus, who though equal with you, didn't consider that equality something to grasp, but gave it up for us.
Father, thank you for the fact that he's our Lord and Saviour, but more than that, he is the one who shows us how we are to live worthy Christian lives. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would enable us to put aside selfish ambition and vain conceit, and instead that we would be those who humbly look to the interests of others for their benefit. We ask, Lord God, that you would also help us to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, not afraid of anything, but willing to put the good news of Jesus out there so that others too might know the great joy of being saved, having our sins forgiven and the hope of eternal life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.